0: So, put our Bibles to Matthew five, because this is such an important part of, of um, the New Testament. I did not want to rush through it, and we left off with verse seventeen. We finished sixteen, and we got through the first part of the Beatitudes, the and we find ourselves in verse seventeen. And we're going to jump right in there, as the Lord says, "Do not think that I've." Come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And we'll get a turn right away to the book of Romans, chapter 10. And while you're turning, let me explain the law. It wasn't just Ten Commandments that Moses received, actually, he was up there for 40 days and nights, and it were 613. And basically, the law was laid out on how to live life. And we're going to deal with issues tonight like uh, murder, adultery, divorce, fulfillment of the law, keeping your word, retaliation, and love. And all these things were laid out in the law, and it was very, very practical. Like if you ripped off somebody's um, um, cow, well, then you had to pay him back double, uh, when when you admitted your fault. And um, very, very practical things on how to live life is, as it's laid out. So when it says here that Jesus <clears throat> um, says he did not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it, it's basically saying that uh, he lived the perfect life. Every part of the law that was ever written, he completely fulfilled it without breaking any part of it. And he's the only person who has ever walked this planet that can make such a statement. Now, in Romans 10, um, Paul is concerned about his brethren who are Jews. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel that they may be saved. Uh, So much for dual covenancy. A dual covenancy means that God has a plan for the Jews and he has a plan for the church. Well, this is a Jew talking about his own people. And so he's praying that his heart's desires at all that they might be saved. Then he says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. And I've observed that many times watching them very passionately bob before the wailing wall. In their prayer, and we'll be coming back to that as we talk about uh, repetitious prayers. And they have, and we'll get to that in just a bit. So they do have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, let's go back to the verse where the Lord says, Don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I haven't. I've come to fulfill it. So he lives the perfect life. We can't. And when he came, um, the law came to an end as far as God's righteousness is concerned. Now, we read in other places that the real reason for the law was to be a tutor. And when you get tutored for something, you're, you're taking classes and you're learning. Well, it's to tutor you that you are guilty of the law. The purpose of the law is to show you you can't keep the law. And if it accomplishes that, then it's served its purpose. So when Jesus came and he fulfilled it, that was the end of the law as far as now coming to God, as far as his righteousness is concerned. Now, he's going to say, you have to be more, in just a bit, you're going to have to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees to go to heaven. Well, that's unthinkable. Who can who can be better than them as far as the average Joe was concerned? It's not possible. That's the point. It's not possible. So, by accepting Christ and allowing him to live inside of you, it's like the disciples coming to him saying, Lord, What works must we do to gain eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and said, this is the work of God. This is what you need to do as far as the law goes. Believe in me. And if you do that, then you'll be accepted by God because he lived the perfect life. God is holy. We must be holy. We're not holy. Jesus is holy. If you've accepted him, he's in you. Therefore, that makes you holy. Good place for an amen. And it's a good place, again, this is where we need to continually be reminded this is where the freedom comes in for us as believers. It's also where the joy comes in. It's also where the gratitude comes in, um, being grateful. You can't muster up gratitude. You're either grateful or you're not. (laughs) And when you realize what the Lord has done, you simply become free and you become grateful. Now, um, he goes on to say after that, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now we're talking about the totality of scriptures. On Sunday, we were in Daniel 9 and in verse 24. I told you that over a 490-year period of time, God was going to accomplish everything that he's ever going to do as far as the things that are written in this book. And what we read here is basically saying the same thing, that heaven, till heaven and earth pass away, a jot or a tittle would be the very smallest marks. We'd say dotting an I and crossing a T in the English language. In the the Hebrew language, it's a jot or a tittle. And by one little mark, it can change the whole meaning of a word. And the Lord is saying that if it's written in this book, it has to be fulfilled, and nothing can stop it from being fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks nineteen one of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Um, I think this means adding to or taking away from Scripture. Uh, one of, one of the things that makes me comfortable behind the pulpit is our, that we read through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Um, I believe Genesis 1 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I believe the warning at the end of the book of Revelation that says, you better not add anything to it and you better not take anything away from it. So as long as we stay going through that without getting sidetracked, Um, with other things other than what is in the text. And uh, as Chuck would say, simply teaching the word of God simply. I'm comfortable with that. Are you comfortable with that? (laughs) It's easy and it's doable. And as we make our way through the scriptures, what happens is little by little, we go from milk to the meat. It doesn't happen over time. And... um, I wish, I wish it would happen a lot quicker. But um, the Lord has his um, uh, way of c- causing us to grow in faith. And the fact of the matter is, faith can only come by hearing. And it can only come be, by what you guys are doing here tonight, by studying God's word. So we have our faith increased simply by doing what we're doing. And if we don't compromise from that, when all is said and done, why we get sidetracked here talking about the two judgments? I was talking to somebody after the second service on Sunday, explaining the difference between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is just for the lost. They'll be judged according to their works. I don't want to be judged according to my works. And the judgment seat of Christ... We're going to talk about in chapter seven verse one, judge that you won't be judged. Judge not that you it's talking about the motive of the heart. Now when we get to that, that's what the judgment seat of Christ is about that's the judgment seat of Christ is for you and for me, and our motive why we do what we do now I don't know always why another brother or sister does what he does. What's what's his purpose? Why are you doing that? Let's well, stop my business. A lot of times people put their noses in other people's business when the Bible clearly says, don't be busybody and don't put your nose in other people's business. Somebody give me an amen. And yet, you know, that's not being Christ-like. It's definitely not being led by the Holy Spirit. It's not being gracious. And... um what the Beatitudes are, are teaching us here is keeping our words and and respond the way that the Lord would would respond. So when it comes to the Bible, um, it's you know just not adding anything to it or trying to take anything away from it. As we get into verse twenty through twenty six, we're getting into um, the difference between murder. And killing, thou shalt not kill, I think it says in the King James. The New King James gets it right here and changes it, it says thou shalt not murder. And um, the difference between the two is being a killer is something that is often premeditated and um, is a result of um, any any number of motives from jealousy to hatred to fill in the blank. Why a person would take another person's life it's different when in our judicial system where we still have the death penalty for a person who does commit um, murder uh, they in some uh, states this guy who's uh, said he'd plead guilty down in Florida if they take away the death penalty well that they have we have the right in the state of Florida, that they still have the death penalty in the system. And he says, yeah, I'll confess to the whole thing if you just take the death penalty off the plate, but not unless you do that. Well, that's not killing, or that's not murder, that's killing, but there's a difference between the two. And when men go to war, they don't murder, but there is killing that goes on, goes on all the time. Um... I can't get too sidetracked here. Let's pick out of verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that had to blow them away. But again, that was clarified for us when we read Romans 10. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Uh, Whoever says to his brother, Raka. Now, um, (laughs) I had to look that up because I keep forgetting what Raka means. It's actually a a Jewish term of reproach towards another person, basically saying you're a stupid idiot. You don't have a brain in your head. How's that for a a paraphrase, okay? And that's basically what you're saying uh, to a person. And you really have really no cause. And by making such a statement, um, you know, is equivalent to the Lord as um, murder. I shall be in danger of of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell's fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way, first reconcile to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. In other words, we're going to get into um, revenge here in just a little bit. But uh, let's remember on Sunday morning, uh, if Paul's doing an announcement, he'll all often read from First Corinthians 11, um, let a man examine himself before he partakes of the Lord's Supper, and that, that you judge yourself, okay, you judge yourself. Who did I get upset with this week? Did you make an attempt to make it right? Were you wrong? And um, it, it can be a situation where uh, they've sinned against you and they haven't repented, Well, the ball's in their court. Uh, The Bible says, unless you repent, you'll perish. But if you repent, then you have to forgive. If a guy comes up to you and he says, man, I blew it, I'm sorry, I got in the flesh, I shouldn't have said that, and I did it, I feel bad, will you forgive me? You have to forgive him. And that's the context that this is in here. You can't hold that against you, them, um, because... Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And you've got to have your heart clean before you can actually take communion and make that right, if it's in your power to make it right. Now, again, there's people who may have wronged you or have sinned against you. They have no intention to make it right. And there's nothing you can do about that. And as in that situation, um, it's like being saved. If you repent, um, then the Lord will forgive you. But if you don't repent, then you're not forgiven. Ball's in your court when it comes to this. So it gives you an opportunity, um, you know, to wake up every morning. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Isn't that a great scripture? As long as you're in a frame of mind of doing your best to make things right, then you got a clean slate every single morning. And if if you blew it, and it's a personal sin that, you know, it's between you and the Lord, and only you and the Lord know about it, uh, then 1 Corinthians uh, 1 John 1, 9 comes in. If you confess your sins, then he's faithful. He's just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He continually lives to make intercession for us. I can't wait for this Sunday. Because it's all about the resurrection. And um, boy, I'm nervous because of uh, things that I'm watching and observing and how they're explaining away the resurrection in very sophisticated ways. I hinted about it a little bit. And I'm going to make it a part of the message um, this Easter. Because the fact of the matter is, there are people who only go to church on Easter and Christmas. So you guys be praying. Because the people who show up for the Wednesday night Bible study aren't the CEOs. I call them CEOs. Christmas and Easter only. Okay, I'm preaching to the choir, in other words. So what can you do? You can pray for Sunday morning. Because there will be people that are saved in the family. They won't come to church all year long. But they, let's say it's a husband and a wife. And they say, honey... It's Easter. Will you come to me to... Well, because it's Easter, I'll come. Okay. Well, I want to preach the gospel on on Easter Sunday. I want the gospel message to be clear. And right now, it's being explained away um, in in a lot of different ways and can give a lot of people excuses. And it's all about the resurrection. Um, Okay, I can't go too far there because that's Sunday's message. But you guys, being the choir, you pray. Pray that the Lord, by his Spirit, by his Holy Spirit, would just anoint the message and the worship like crazy, that people um, come to Christ, because the fact of the matter is, it's late, and there's no guarantees for Easter next year, or Christmas this year, for that matter. Amen? So prayer is a big part of that. <clears throat> so in verse 23... Uh, Make, verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on your way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown in prison. Assuredly, I say to you that you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. So verses 20 to 26 deals with our attitude of heart, and... Um, When we get into verse 27 through 30, it deals with the sin of adultery. You have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. My cross-references is Exodus 20. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this is the guy, the rich young ruler, who came up to the Lord and says, what good deed must I do to enter into the kingdom? And the Lord says, well, keep the commandments. I says, well, I've done all that. Well, no, he hasn't. Because <laughs> all the Lord would have had to say, have you ever looked at a woman with, with lust? Have you ever, woman, have you ever looked at a man in a, in a lustful way? And every person here is guilty as charged without exception. And so um, it's not necessarily the outward act, but the inward uh, heart that the Lord is exposing here. And with that, let's turn over to First Corinthians chapter six. Again, unfortunately, society is changing the church rather than the church changing society. I'm not surprised. The Bible says that's exactly what will happen in the last days. We're living in the last days. So it tells us that in the last days that there will be the apostasy or the falling away. In other words, the culture, the society we live in is going to have an influence on the church where it was unheard of. Maybe you'd hear, you know, growing up as a kid, you might have. Heard it once or twice of um, somebody committing adultery or something like that. and It was a big scandal. Well, nobody thinks anything these days about uh, sleeping around, messing around, living with each other before they're married, even in Christian circles. So that's why I had you turn to First Corinthians 6, verse 9. And I want to emphasize... The words, do not be deceived. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So no matter what the culture says or what the culture is doing, um, this trumps it all. And it starts out with neither fornicator nor idolater nor adulterers. The difference between fornication is sex outside of marriage and adultery is you're married and you have sex with someone else. Nor homosexuals, and that's the big thing today. Um, you can't watch a program or a commercial where it's inferred or implied um, in that uh, with the promotion of the gay lifestyle, and you know it's everyday discussion. And I don't know too many families these days that aren't dealing with it on some level with a family member. I talked with a uh, a couple this week for over an hour about this very thing, Um, and everybody here, either you're dealing with it or you know somebody who is. But don't be deceived, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, are going to go to heaven. So you can believe what you want to. And uh, the culture may say, this is fine, indulge in it, don't worry about it, everybody's doing it. Um, but the fact of the matter is, we just read, heaven Heaven and earth isn't going to pass away till one dot or one tittle of what I just read comes to pass. This trumps it. So if you think it's acceptable behavior, Ongoing. And I'm not, I'm not talking now of messing up like David did. David blew it big time when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's sin. And he tried to cover his tracks even worse by taking out Uriah, um, Bathsheba's husband. But in, in that case with David, it, it wasn't um, uh, an ongoing, continuous thing, like a lifestyle. What we have here is an ongoing lifestyle where people think it's okay to do it and and not I mean oh, I told myself I was going to get through the beatitudes tonight, but it doesn't look like I'm going to turn to um no, turn to um first Corinthians five as long as we're here, let's dive into it and. And drive the point home. It's a big issue in our culture today. And we simply need to be strong enough in our faith and our knowledge of the word of God to say that if you believe this is acceptable as a Christian, then you're deceived and you're not going to heaven. And you need to be strong enough in your convictions um, some people say, well, that's not being very loving. Listen, it's the most loving thing you can do. Because if you say that it's acceptable when the Bible says it's not, uh, then the most loving thing you can do is tell them, listen, buddy, you're on a fast track to hell and you don't know it. You're playing Russian roulette with your soul. That's the most loving thing you can tell them. First uh, Corinthians 5, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And even such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you're puffed up. In other words, they said, well, you know, it's part. everybody's doing it. And in Corinth, I've been in Corinth, and um, immorality was the main problem of Corinth. They had a temple up on a hill uh, where a thousand temple prostitutes would come down on the weekend and, that was their lifestyle. So that penetrated the church, and so they, they, they didn't think a whole lot about it. And he, Paul says here, you guys are puffed up, and you have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed, he's writing a letter, I'm absent in the body, but I'm present in spirit. I've already judged it, it, as if I was there present concerning him who has done this deed. In the name of Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is a very important scripture. Kick the guy out. Don't let him fellowship, and don't let everybody think that this is acceptable behavior in the church. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? What does that mean? Well, let him go back into the world for a while and um, pray that he comes to the end of himself. Why? Because maybe, like the prodigal in the pig pen, he'll come to his senses and um, he'll come back and he'll actually be saved. In the condition he is in, Paul is saying he's deceived and he thinks he's going to heaven. And he's not. Uh, so that his soul might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens a whole lump? So this this had a leavening effect in the whole body. Everybody knew about it. But, um, you know, it's Corinth. It's, a, it's the times we live in. You know, and you've got to change with the times. No. This book is like its writer. The same yesterday, today and forever. Forget the culture. Culture always changes. This doesn't. Here's the good news. They kicked him out. And after being beat up in a world for a little while, he repents. And then so when Paul writes about it in Second Corinthians, he says, you know that letter I wrote you guys? I told you to kick that guy out. He said, I, I, I found no pleasure in doing that. I didn't want to do it. I was grieved that I had to do it. But here's the good news. He's repented. And then he says, now listen up. I don't want any one of you treating this person who was removed and is now back in fellowship. Don't you dare treat him as a second-class Christian. Oh, you're the guy I oh am. Yeah. Well, you can sit with us, but you're not going to come out <laughs> and have lunch with us after the second service. No, you go the extra mile. He says, you purposely love on that person. Because the devil will be doing enough to beat him up, and he'll be beating himself up for for what he did. And so I got sidetracked. <laughs> Let's go back to, to the Matthew. Adultery. Don't be deceived. Um, and when it happens in your heart, and nobody knows except you and the Lord, then that's an issue that the Spirit will convict you of, The spirit will be grieved, and it's something that you need to get right right, one-on-one between you and the Lord. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it out from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish, that your whole body be cast into hell. I believe the Lord is just emphasizing that the don't be deceived part here. There are eternal consequences if you think you can live an adulterous lifestyle continually, and uh, it, it's not going to have eternal consequences. And if your right hand causes you to sin, uh, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. Again, emphasizing the seriousness of being separated from God and in torment forever and ever and ever. All right, it's going to go into the subject now from adultery to divorce. Verse 31 and 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, Let's turn to so that you have a full understanding of Jesus' teaching on divorce here. We not only need to go to the Old Testament, but we need more clarification in the New. So let's go to Deuteronomy, chapter 24. And we'll pick it up and we'll just read the first five verses here. Now when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. In other words, well, I didn't know that about you, or something, Uh, fill in the blank. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Now, when this was originally written, it had to be a very serious offense, evidently. But what happened over the time and over generations, they, the Jewish people took advantage of this scripture, and um, eventually burnt toast was grounds for, divert, for divorce. And if you didn't like the way she cooked, well, there's uncleanness. All, all he had to say is, I don't like this. And it got to be that easy uh, for a husband to get rid of his wife. For any reason, and it got it really got that bad. And when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her, and now writes a certificate of divorce, so now this guy doesn't like her because she can't vacuum or whatever. No, they didn't have vacuum cleaners then, or whatever. He comes up with some reason, and he writes her letter of divorce, puts it on her hand, and sends her to the house or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, in other words, the first husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Now remember I told you that the 613 commandments were very real. What do I do with real life situations? So part of the law was to make um, a a petition, a certificate that showed that um, you were getting this divorce, but again it was abused and misused and um, you could divorce your wife basically for for anything as time went on. Okay, verse five. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year. Now, I like this verse. Um, if a young couple comes in, and let's say they're in their late teens, and they're brand new Christians, and let's say they, um, you know, they're a part of the culture, the society, and and. Um, it's not a hard set rule that we have, but if they're young and they just got saved and they want to get married, I ask them to wait at least six months because the two biggest changes that are going to happen in your life is being born again and coming to the Lord because you have a whole new life. The next biggest change in your life is getting married and living with another person. So now... What I try to do is keep as much time as we can so there's it doesn't all happen at once and you have two of the biggest changes in your life happening all at the same time. Is everybody kind of with me? Okay, it's different if people are older and they've, they've uh, been around a while. But I like this. They wouldn't allow them to go to war so that they could he could stay at home and um, love on his wife for a year. And um, he'd be free from going to war. And they could actually, you know, get a good foundation laid uh, in their marriage. All right, let's go back now where the Lord talking about it back in um, chapter 5, where he says, you've heard, let him give her a certificate of divorce. All right, now you understand what that means. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So now, if you have two Christians, and one Christian divorces the other Christian, the Lord says, um, if only if that person has been unfaithful, and um, the psychological scars of an adulterous affair, and this is what the Lord is saying here, are so deeply rooted. Because when two come together and become one flesh, if that is violated by one of the partners having an the word today is having an affair. If they have an affair with another person, there's I can't think of anything that would be more... Gut wrenching uh, or hurtful than that betrayal, and the Lord acknowledges that here. He says, "Yes, that one um, is grounds for divorce." Now, that's all He says about it. So, for further clarification, um, again going to Corinthians because this was an issue in the Corinthians church. Like, I won't spend too much time on it. First Corinthians seven. Here, I believe that it teaches in First Corinthians 7 that that person should be treated who did the divorcing as a non-believer because they did not have biblical grounds. And if you don't have biblical grounds and you divorce outside of sexual immorality, then that person should be treated as an unbeliever because they're acting as an unbeliever. In verse 15, It puts the other person in a difficult position. So what does Paul write about this as he deals with this issue? Um, I would read the full chapter, um, but for sake of time, I'll just cut to the quick verse 15. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such case, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So it it gets into um, more detail here in in discussing the principles for um, a married. Verse 10 says, I command you, a wife is not to depart from her husband. Um, But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and husband is not to divorce his wife. This is clearly what the Lord taught. And so let's go back to that. I mean, this is on our Bible study right here, and it's just one of five or six topics of Christian living that are in chapter 5. So let's go to verse 33 and switch gears. Christians keeping their word. Verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it is said, To those of old you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Uh, Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but just let your yes be yes and your no be no, uh, for whatever is more than these things is uh, from the evil one. In other words, the whole idea here is don't make promises if you can't keep them. And be, as Christians, um, men and women of your word. Uh, I had had some, uh, I hired a guy to do some business uh, this week, really just um, yard work, but it's, it's a, it was a cr- Christian company. And I asked him what it was going to cost me to do this or th- that or the other thing. And he told me, and um, I shook his hand. Uh, I didn't ask for an estimate. Could have. I didn't. I just, uh, I shook his hand. And I purposely did it this way. And I said, okay, I'll see it on this day. He says, okay. But he gave me the number. I said okay to the number, I shook his hand, and I only did it because he was a Christian. Why did I do it? Because I I believe, as a believer, you as a Christian and me as a believer, if I say something, my word is as good as anything that I write out. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? And they should look at you and they they should say, that guy's a Christian. If he said it, he's going to do it. And that should be the reputation that we have here. And that's what the Lord is saying. Be careful what you say. Because you might not be able to follow through with it. And and don't go rambling on about it. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And be known um, as a believer by saying, Hey, listen, if that's what that guy said, then this is good as gold. And, you know, there were the days. I'm old enough to remember the days that, Business was done with a handshake, and uh, there was enough integrity in those days that you could, have, you could do business with a handshake. Not these days, unless you really believe that person is a, is a brother and, and his words as good as gold. All right, retaliation. We're switching gears again. 38 through 42, you have heard that it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You hit me, I hit you. And that, 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 was, that was part of the law. But I tell you to resist the evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anybody wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile with him, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn him away. As believers, I'm going to have you turn in this one to 38 to 42. No, not this one. Okay. I thought I had a cross reference that I wanted to turn to from here. But um, the whole idea, we've all heard the expression, man, that guy, he's always going the extra mile. It's sort of Christianese. Has everybody heard that? That guy's always going the extra mile. Or he's a self starter. You don't have to worry about him. He's, um, you don't need to tell him what he has to do. He's already doing it before you talk to him. Well, that's what this verse is saying here. You know, the attitude that we have oh, oh you want me to do something for you? Fine, I'll even do more. And um, if if somebody rips you off instead of uh, um, taking them to court for it and they, they took your coat, well, Blow his mind and go over to him and say, you must be cold. <laughs> you took my coat. Here, here's a couple sweaters to go along with it. The Bible calls that heaping coals of fire upon a person's head. Isn't that a strange expression? We call it today blowing their minds, okay? You want to blow their minds because what they're expecting if you, to get ripped off, oh, no, I'm busted. This guy's going to turn me in. I'm on parole right now, I'll probably end back, up back in jail. No, blow his mind. And by blowing his mind, he's expecting just the opposite. You're heaping coals of fire on his head. He's getting something that he's not expecting, and it's coming from, a, wow, you're different. People don't do that. I just ripped you off, and now you're giving me this? Who are you anyway? What makes you tick? That you're not ticked at me for what I just did to you. And that's the whole point. That our life is to be so different that people sit up and take notice. And believe me, they're watching you. Everybody knows you're being watched by non believers. All right, uh, the last part looks like we're going to make it through chapter 5. Not bad, Dwight. 43 to 48. You have heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust for if you love those who love you what reward have you the tax collectors do this much anybody can love anybody that loves you and you can love them back but what about the problem with the guy that you have a problem with loving them when they don't love you well again that's showing you know the christian way of blowing their minds to get their attention, in this case, um, it's with the idea of being a good witness. So that person is actually thinking, yeah, I wish I could be like that. But I know I'm not like that. But there's something that makes him different or her different. And um, it could be just the thing that cracks them to actually think about, I wish I had the piece that that guy has. I wish I had the piece that that gal has. With the things um, that I know they're going through or whatever. So we made it to chapter 6. Praise the Lord. Chapter 6 of Matthew deals with the external parts of religion. We have seen in chapter 5 that the king speaks of the righteousness which his subjects must possess. It must be a righteousness to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that comes only when a person trusts in Jesus. Now, in chapter 6, Matthew talks about the righteousness that is the subject of the kingdom that we are to practice. Uh, The motive, of course, is the important thing in what you do for God. No third party can enter into this relationship. These things are between the soul and God. So in this chapter, we're going to have um, how to give, how how to give and do good works, your prayer life, fasting, money, uh, taking thought and care for the future are very practical considerations. This is one of the most important chapters, I think, in the Bible today in... The the crazy world in which we live in. And let's just dive right in because I really want to at least get through chapter 6. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when you do a good deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say, they have re, their reward. But when you do a good deed, <clears throat> do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, do it secretly. That your charitable deeds may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now, I'll just give you a um, an example of this. Uh, somebody walked into Chuck's office one day when he was alive, and and said, I'd like to write out a check for a million dollars and give it to Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. And, and these are the early days. And uh, when Chuck tells the story, he says, wow, is that and take taken back? He says, yeah, I think it's a great thing. Maybe we should get the, the newspaper here so that we can get one, one of those big checks, you know, that you see people, <laughs> the check's this high and this, this long, and you're standing in front of it, so you can make the uh, CBS Evening News that you gave this much money. And that actually happened to it. And when Chuck picked up on the fact that this is what the, where the guy was headed, um, he turned it down. Now just think about that. Think about somebody coming up to you and saying, you know, I'd really like to give a million dollars to this ministry. But, you know, a million dollars is a lot of money. And we should at least let the public know where it came from, right? How many of you would turn that down? I want you to know Chuck did. He says, you know, I hear world visions, really, and and this is when, before they got a little off. A lot of ministries are getting a little off, but they weren't back then. I mean, we're talking the 60s here, late 60s, when Calvary was just getting started. And he actually turned down a million dollars. He says, why don't don't you go, and what's in the back of Chuck's head? This verse right here. If you're going to do a charitable deed, then do it in secret. But Chuck was basically saying i don 't want any part of promoting you, okay, and you go you can do it to somebody else, boy, how I would like to say I would do that <laughs> I hope we do, but here the again the admonishment is that as as believers we we do these things so that the world doesn 't know in verses five through through um, 14, we have the Lord's Prayer, and prayer in particular. Prayer is the lifeblood of the church, and we're to pray without ceasing. good example of that, I, set, I gave an example on Sunday of being in prayer at all times. Remember when Nehemiah stood before Artaxerxes, and um, the king saw he was sad, and he was calling Nehemiah out on it. He says, you're sad. Why are you sad? Tell me. And he says, what do you want, Nehemiah? And so he said, I made my prayer and said to the king. So he's doing both at the same time. So we're to be in a continual state of, Lord, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And that's what it means to be praying without ceasing. But then it talks about wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. And we are to pray one for another. And we take that Literally. It says men ought always to pray and not to faint. So we just take that literally. We have men's prayer here. We've had it since the church began. And we'll continue it until the Lord comes, both for men and for the women. It is the highlight of the week. So, verse 5. What do you pray? You shall not be as the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue. And on the corners of the street they may be seen of men. Assuredly, I say, they have the reward. Now, I have a visual of this. We had an Israel party the other night, and one of the comments that a person said was, well, when you're there and you read it in the Bible, it comes to life because you can actually picture that place. Well, when I read this verse, I picture the Wailing Wall. And next to the Wailing Wall is a chamber that you can go into. And um, in it is nothing but prayer books. They're all prayer books. You can take out any prayer book you want to. And what they do is they take their prayer books and they take it out in front of the wailing wall and they'll stand in with their prayer books like this and they start really getting into it like this. And their lips will be moving and um, it um, is exactly what this verse is referring to here. It's done openly and it's repetitious because it's the same book over and over again that they have. But it says, when you pray, verse 6, go into your, your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret uh, place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as as the heathens do. Now, to me, in our culture and society, uh, this would um, be... Um, saying the rosary over and over again. That's a vain, repetitious prayer. Or say, so many are fathers uh, for, you know, and as a, a punishment for your sins. And uh, clearly, the, the absurdity in this is, if the Lord is your best friend, and uh, you're in communion and conversation with him. <laughs> Which of you have, just think of your best friend for a second. And you go up to him, and every time you see him, you say the same thing to him over and over again for 30 years. He'd say, you're crazy. What are you talking about? And that's what the Lord is saying here. He says, I want to know what you're going through now. I want you to be gut-level honest with me. What did you do? Why did you do it? and let's talk it out. And it's confess we're told to confess our faults one to another. And then pray one for another. And when we literally do that with with the men and women here on Saturday morning. Now having said that, I have to admit and I have fond memories of mother tucking us in at night when we were kids. We had uh, bunk beds and we had four in one room. And she would tuck each of us in, and she would. We would pray the Our Father prayer, and I have good, fun memories of that. Yes, it was a, it was a repetitious prayer, but we always added. Mom would say something like this. Now, at the end of the prayer, think about who else you want to pray for. So we had this, this one done. This really isn't um, the Lord's prayer. This is really, um, uh, the the disciples' prayer. And um, so we'll, we'll read it. I, he says, pray in this manner. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And this is the very first thing we're to pray for. And this is an important one. That your kingdom come, not my kingdom come. Society today is wrapped up and what they're going to accomplish and do and be successful in this life. And yet the scriptures teach just the opposite. It says, seek first that kingdom. And if we make it through, I hope, I really do, (laughs) um, we'll find that if we do seek the kingdom first, then the Lord promises to take care of the rest of it. Let's see if we can make it through. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Uh, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Again, there's discus into the whole idea of them, both sides wanting reconciliation. And if both sides do, then there should be that forgiveness that's there. But in order to be saved, what do you have to do? You have to repent. You have to make it right with God by showing your repentance. But what if you don't repent? Is a person saved if they don't repent? The answer is no. Without conviction, there's no conversion. So we need to keep that in context. Let's talk about fasting. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your hands and wash your face. And don't go around like, oh, I'm so weak. Why are you so weak? Oh, I haven't eaten in three days now. Oh, man. But, you know, the Lord told me to do it, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do it. No, just the opposite. Um, don't let on like you're fasting at all. This is a personal thing. Fasting, the purpose of fasting is denying the flesh so it will become weaker so that the spirit will become stronger and i usually encourage people to fast and pray if they have a very serious decision that they have to make and don't and don't move or don't do anything until you feel you've heard from the lord another area here is um, when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a demon-possessed guy, and the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. The Lord said, oh, this one's different. This one only comes out through prayer and fasting. And that is a whole Bible study on talking about the different levels of demonic power in the spiritual realm. When I read here, deliver us from the evil one, I take that seriously. Because the Bible says that the devil goes around like a roaring lion seeing who he can take out. But if you're in fasting and prayer mode, then that's going to put you in a stronger position um, against your adversary. All right. Um, let's go through the rest of this chapter because I really want to finish this up and, and tie this together. This is... Some of my favorite verses in the entire scripture. America is so vulnerable to this because we're so wealthy. And um, compared to the rest of the world, we have so many freedoms. Do not, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. And here's, here's the bottom line. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If, if your heart's desire is to see Jesus face to face, and I can honestly say that's my heart's desire. I already know him. I've known him for more of my life than not my life. And I'm glad to be able to say that. I know his voice. I know when he convicts me. I know when he blesses me. But I've never seen him. Um, but, oh, the song. I'm getting sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked, right? Stay at it. <laughs> oh, what's that song? It's one of the verses in the song that you're my treasure. That you're, that's where your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. And then it gets to the heart of the matter. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. He just lays it right out. Our, we're, we're groomed in our our world that we live in and we want our kids to be successful. We want to send them off to school. We want them to graduate. We want them to get a good job. But at what expense? Today, in the world in which we live, I would second guess um, the things that would undermine a believer's faith. Where do we find it? In our education system. From grade school all the way through college to graduate school, undermining the, the the very thing that we believe in that we're taught what's important in life is to be successful and to learn how to climb that corporate ladder so that you can get to that top top rung, where the Lord just turns it right upside down. He says, "If you want to be great, then learn to be servant of all and make sure the thing that you're seeking first is my kingdom and and then he goes on to say, therefore." Now, this is a big therefore. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what about your body, what am I going to put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor store in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more value than they? And we're talking about just being content here. When a person isn't content, he's trying to fill the void. And a, a lot of people fill the void by just shopping. You know, just, I've got to do something, so I might as well go shopping. And, um, and yet, they're not content. I was, I was driving home today. Um And it was such a beautiful sunny day. And as I was driving down the main drag going in the little chute there, I saw this gal. She had her shoes off, her feet up, and she she was taking in the rays like this. And I laughed out loud. And I laughed out loud because I thought, there is a picture of contentment that I haven't seen in a while. She was just sitting there taking in the rays. And uh, she had this look of, on her countenance of just being at peace, and she was just kicked back. I think she had a book folded up in in, in her chest, and her uh, she was just looking up, and and I thought she's a happy gal, and she's just at peace, just taking taking in the rays. And basically, that contentment um, is what the Lord is saying. Look, I'm going to take care of you. Is not life more than? than of food and clothing. Look at the birds of the air. Um, we read that. Verse 27. Which of you by worrying can add one inch to your statue? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they sow. They can neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, If God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Another therefore. Therefore, don't sweat it. Don't worry. Saying, what are we going to eat, and what are we going to drink, or what are we going to wear? For these are things that the Gentiles, or these are things that people in the world worry about. That's all they think about. For your heavenly father, he knows what you have need of, but seek first the kingdom of God. And this what a great way to end a Wednesday night Bible study. I call it, once again, setting your heading to true north. Being reminded, we're just pilgrims and strangers. We're just passing through here. And Paul told Timothy, Timothy, be a good soldier and don't get too tangled up in this world because it'll suck you in. And remember, we're just passing through, so keep your priorities straight by seeking first the kingdom. And the Lord says, I'll take, I'll take care of the rest. All these other things will be added unto you. Therefore, again, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. And I love this. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, whatever you got going on today is poor today. And if you want to worry about tomorrow, the Lord is saying, go ahead, do it. But know this, it's not going to change a thing. It's not going to add one inch to your height, and it's not going to change anything. I talk to myself about this all the time. When I find myself getting, my head getting, well, what am I going to know about that? And the Lord comes right back, and he tells me this. And I have to go, yes, sir. And I, and the, and I like it because this is the way to live life free. Understanding that um, he knows your needs and if you put him first then you're free and you don't have to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow in the freedom that's there. And I went past my time but at least I got through chapter (laughs) 6. Let's stand and we'll close the prayer. Lord, this it has so much here, and um, it's very convicting, and yet it's basically how to live life. And um, Lord, forgive us for the areas that we've fallen short in and um, have sought things that um, will really bring no contentment. As you said here, we can't serve two masters. So help us, Lord, Um, Be obedient to your word and put you first in all things as your word tells us acknowledge you in all your ways and you'll direct us. And so as we go our way this evening, we have that as our closing prayer. Lord, may, may your will be done and help us not take thought about the things for tomorrow. For tomorrow will be sufficient for its own cares. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.